inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Astronauts landed on the moon 50 years ago, and we have never stopped looking toward the stars, imagining what the future holds far beyond Earth. Launch into Radio Cade's space pod and step inside the future of humanity's journey into deep space. Meet the innovators and visionaries who are charting a bold new course to the moon, then to Mars and beyond. Discover the revolutionary technology that will get us there and see how it's already transformed life here on Earth. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Gannon, Vice President of Research and Innovation at Space Florida. Tony reveals how our new space ecosystem pairs NASA with billionaires and corporate space mavericks to yield an extensive infusion of innovation and capital, transforming the future of space travel and dramatically reducing government costs. Welcome to Radio Cape, Tony. Thank you very much, Richard. It's an honor to be on your podcast. So, Tony, before you tell us about getting to space, tell us about getting to the United States. You were born in the UK, you were raised in Ireland, you've spent some time in Spain and France. How on earth did you end up in Florida? That's a great question, and I'll try and be very brief for the sake of your audience, Richard. So I have that mixed background, which made me sort of diverse in nature. And so when my wife and I decided we were getting married, of course, we couldn't do that in any logistical fashion. We decided we would go to Florida, have a vacation with some friends and get married while we were here. My wife's twin brother lives here in Cocoa Beach in Florida, and it seemed like vacation and marriage, what an ideal situation. So we did that, got married, and while I was here, my wife often joked, she said, I think I became a widow overnight, but I was a space widow, because I literally spent two weeks every day going up to the Space Center, absolutely enamored with the space program and what could be achieved, but really having no idea that I could ever be a part of it. But I think a love was born in my heart for it. And I said, I somehow I'm going to work out a situation whereby I can work in the future in the space industry. It's a great story. And I know that you wrote that you witnessed the 1969 moon landing, I presume, as a child. And that made you want to play some sort of role in the space program. And then, of course, as anyone who's seen the great Apollo 11 documentary or other similar movies, back then, of course, getting to space, the moon was something that only governments did. And now that's a totally different story. So if you could give us a little bit of a history lesson, when did private companies... I mean, they've always had a role, right, as, as contractors and suppliers to the government. But when did they start taking the lead in certain areas? What were some of the early milestones with respect to privatization? And what do you expect to see over the next decade? So in other words, past, present, future, how did we get to now? And, and where do you think we're going? Richard, that's a very comprehensive and a very smart question. I'll do my best to make my response in the way that I see it personally. The space shuttle program, of course, which followed shortly after the Saturn V or the moon program, was very, very costly. According to my memory, it was something in the region of $500 million to send a space shuttle into space. And that does not include a payload. And one could easily have a payload in the cargo bay that costs three quarters of a million dollars, be it a satellite, be it some observation component, or indeed parts of the International Space Station. 
And so the federal government, in close contact with NASA, decided we need to introduce commercial industry to this program because we are heading up a federal program that is going to get costlier and costlier, and it doesn't seem to have any end. And so in the interest, perhaps, of recognizing one of a diminishing public participation in the program, and we've been to the moon, and so people felt, well, it's all done now. But no, there was a commercial element, and it could turn into very productive industry, the powers that be at the time. And I must say, with great reluctance of many people in the industry, they decided they would commercialize the space industry. And so NASA essentially sent out RFPs, requests for proposals from companies that had been developing the thought along the same lines, let us build, design a rocket that meet NASA specifications, but it'll be our rocket. So SpaceX would own the rocket. They would send eventually astronauts into space. They would communicate to the space station. They will do all this kind of work in space, but they were not just the only one. And so that commercial thought, which met with so much resistance at the early stage, really was very farsighted. It was the true answer to commercial space, that we take the federal element out of it, let them provide some funding, but that we let the industry be driving the industry. And that was the commercialization of space exploration. And that is really, I think, what's captured the imagination of a lot of people, particularly in the last few years, as we see the fruit of that investment, right? The incredible videos of the SpaceX rockets landing on platforms in the middle of the ocean and stuff like that. I think everyone all of a sudden realized, like, wow, this isn't just small stuff. This is actually the major components of all the stages, right, of getting liftoff and then actually once you're in space... What's clear, though, is that this is probably not going to ever be just a private thing, right? Or is it? Is there a potential where, let's say 20 years from now or even 10 years from now, is there going to be equivalent of United Airlines or American Airlines saying, OK, you want to take a trip up to space? Good. Here, go online, book your ticket. Or is it always going to be something to do with a government mission, government funding? What would you say? It's going to be a mixture. It's funny you should say that, that the thought was crossing my mind as you were mentioning about it being NASA prior to or a federally driven program. Then you have the introduction of all those commercial space companies. And we always mention SpaceX for pretty obvious reasons. But it can be said NASA's mission itself changed. And now they're being challenged with, you might say, the exploration of distant space. And so the recent launch we had from Cape Canaveral, SpaceX rocket owned by Elon Musk and company, has on board a NASA Mars Explorer with a little helicopter on board, which is a NASA entity. But here we have privately owned spacecraft launching a mission to Mars on behalf of NASA. I mean, that in itself is amazing. It's so challenging, but it's also so exciting. I had the pleasure, I was watching, um, I won't mention a local TV station uh, some weeks ago, but I saw the chief scientist who had worked on the helicopter on the Mars mission, and she was discussing how for the first time ever, a craft, be it a drone, would be launched from a lander on planet Mars and explore sections of Mars and take videos and send it back via a satellite back to Earth. It'll probably take about eight to 10 minutes for that signal to get back to planet Earth. But I mean, that is the ultimate. Here we are exploring in a drone, planet Mars, going into all those caves and caverns, returning data, all sorts of pickup. And for the first time, which is something I had thought a long time ago was, let's hear the sound of Mars, the sound of the wind. What is it like? And there are very, very strong winds on planet Mars. So that element is really exciting. I think the commercial elements will probably overtake what NASA's mission is. They will stay very singularly focused on getting to Mars. 
So we can in the near future, just like you said, we will have SpaceX astronauts, we will have Blue Origin astronauts, Virgin Galactic or Virgin astronauts, and a whole range of companies. Boeing, of course, I shouldn't forget with the Starliner. So we might have 10 different astronaut corps. For the moment, it appears they're training through Houston and the NASA programs to meet those NASA standards. But who can say that in the future, in 10 years' time, that astronauts might not be trained in New York City, in Washington, D.C., or even in Florida, where the launches take place from? So it is, and you drew a great comparison there with the airlines. We had the hedge-hopping days of the 1910s and 1920s, and people trying risky maneuvers in their flying machines. And then we moved on to commercial enterprise, driven by that great challenge, I guess, of Lindbergh flying the Atlantic. And now we have, in the future, the prospect of having a choice of companies who will fly us perhaps to the moon, around the moon, for a honeymoon, which would be ideal, or taking us on to preferred locations such as Mars. So we live in a very challenging, but isn't it really exciting to think of such deeds would happen possibly within our lifetime? Tony, you said something earlier that I think you put your finger right on it in terms of NASA has to focus on one goal. And it strikes me that probably one of the best things about privatization, at least the participation in private companies, is they have a lot more room to be creative, right? Where the government, and I spent almost all my career in government, so I know this well, you would identify your one big goal, and that's where all the resources go. That's where all the thought and the planning go. And a lot of the smaller stuff, it's like, well, that's a distraction. But that's kind of the whole point of the market, right? Is you have a little company and they say, well, hey, wouldn't it be great to make a drone to fly on Mars or you know, some sort of other thing that they know would probably do well in a space environment, at least is necessary in a space environment. And they devote all their efforts to creating that little thing in a way that the government would probably just say like, yeah, we don't have time to do that sort of stuff. You're so right, Richard. And I'm not sure what government agency you work with. In a different life, I worked for a government agency in Ireland following college. And every document that I saw or read had to be signed about 10 times. And this was in the business development area. This was not in new technologies. I would like to mention, if I may, and I think we play a very big role. I'm very honored in Space Florida to be involved with a section of the community that comes up with this innovation. And I'll give you the examples. Space Florida, when we were initiated, what, 12, 13 years ago by our then Governor Bush, Jeb Bush, in a very insightful manner, combining three existing agencies to one. So we're like the go-to point if you want to go to Florida, if you want to get yourself involved commercially or federally in the aerospace program. And so what happened was we were dealing with the big guys, the Boeings, Lockheed Martins, Harris Corporation, now L3 Harris, Northrop Grumman, NASA, of course, SpaceX, Blue Origin, the entire gambit of major companies. But I often felt in my heart, and I spoke to our president, Frank DeBello, one day, and I said, no, we need to take care of the little guys too. Those young companies, which are formulated by very smart young entrepreneurs who come out of some of the colleges like University of Florida, UCF, Embry-Riddle, and a whole host of all our Florida universities, and indeed throughout the United States. And they have great ideas. But how do they get those ideas to fruition that can assist in this great aerospace adventure that we're sitting on the threshold of? And so I thought one thing they all need, and they all have in common, is they need money. They need lots of money. And we need to place our thrust in their enthusiasm, in their determination to succeed. Many will fail, but let's give them a chance. And so about six or seven years ago, I met with a group. Forgive me for jumping into this too quickly. I apologize on that. I said, how can I do this? I said, I need a team of investors who have the openness to say, we can't guarantee you anything, Tony, but we listen to these young entrepreneurs and we'll make our decisions there and we'll let you know. 
And so we formed this partnership with the Florida Venture Forum and Space of Florida in our capacity. What we could do was put up a prize money. And we determined that that prize money would be $100,000 per capital accelerator. And that we would undertake two of those accelerators per year. So with an investment of $200,000 over the past six years, we're at about $1.3 million investment into the companies. In other words, if you, Richard, had a company called ABC Technologies and you won the accelerator today with Space Florida, chances are you would receive an award of about $40,000. In second place, it's 30 and 20 and so forth. And so you have this exposure to the investors who are sitting around watching you. And here to forward, it's been live. Now we're on a webinar and they're listening to you and they're thinking, this young man or this young company are looking for $5 million. That's an extraordinary amount of money. I want to see their technology. And it's the technology that will attract the investment and the investors. And I can tell you, this is an ROI that I can actually provide full details of. To date, over six years, over $460 million has been invested in those Florida companies during the past six years. With an investment of less than $1.5 million, this is what we can show. And this is fantastic. And yet, when it's judged by California standards, it may seem quite small. I'd love to hear California investors say, you know what? I threw $50 million in here. I threw $40 million in there. Hey, Dan, I lost it all. But I threw $200 million into Amazon and the sun is shining. The fact that the investors can talk in those terms, I mean, obviously, I'm not in the same payroll as them, but is that investment community is really driving commercialization, entrepreneurship, and I think of great assistance to our youth. So I'll get off my bandwagon now and pass it back to you, Richard. You know, at the Cade Museum, we also have a similar prize, Cade Prize, that we're not focused necessarily on a particular sector like you are on space, but basically the same stage, very early seed stage companies. And you're exactly right. I think that's been a game changer, particularly in, in a state like Florida, where the number of ideas coming out of the universities is huge. But the capital to fund those ideas is relatively tiny. And then the management talent to take them to the next level is also somewhat thin. So I think what you're doing is exactly right. Can you give us some examples of maybe some companies that have come out of the Florida Venture Forum, the space-related companies that are working on current technologies related to space? As you know, Richard, I have no notes in front of me, so I go from my poor memory. I could say our last aerospace adventure, which was only in May and June this year, we had something in the region of 89 or 90 applications, and it actually there's zero charge to apply. So we had that number. 20 were selected to present. One success story that I'm particularly fond of is Census Technologies, who are located at the Microplex in Embry-Riddle. And essentially, they're working on drones, drone technology. And they have drones that test at the airport there. It's a wonderful location for them. But their CEO called me just about three weeks ago and said, Tony, I want to tell you a little story. Do you remember we appeared in your Venture Forum collaboration and we got second place? We'd love to have been first, but we got second. But more importantly, we got investor interest in our company. And within about a month following their appearance in a webinar, they had investors of over $2 million. And when I read the press release that he sent to me and he copied our president, Frank DeVello, I said, wow, you've just made not just my day, but my week and my month because you have done exactly what we wanted to do for you. And I've often said, and it might sound like a cliche, that what we're trying to do in Space Florida is help those companies, those smaller companies in that supply chain that it's so competitive to be in. 
But think of the joy, the fact that a company then with maybe eight to 10 employees, they get this enormous pint of blood in the arm said, you know what? We like what you do. We like your management team and we believe in your technology. Here's $2 million and be successful. That to me is just phenomenal. I'd also, if I might mention, not a company that participated in the Florida Venture Forum, but with whom Space Florida has had a very strong relationship with. And perhaps you know them. They're called Made in Space. They were the company who first installed the 3D printer on board the International Space Station several years ago. And coincidentally, through my Florida-Israel Innovation Partnership, I suggested to their management, you know what? You guys have got great industry going on. However, you need to build a manufacturer in space. And perhaps if you were to partner with another innovative 3D company, you might come up with some smart ideas. You apply for the grant, and if our judges deem that you're worthy, you might pick up $250,000, $300,000 as an award to explore, can you do this in space? They did, and they've been successful twice, which means they have achieved, what, $500,000? And now they are starting a program of manufacturing in space. So what was initially seen as being a gimmick, that they can build a little plastic container in space and, hey, how cool is that, manufacturing in space? But how about manufacturing for the purposes of generating revenue and building a company, expanding a company portfolio? That's really something else. And I'm very proud of what they have done, but it's not just me. It's been a whole team, our business development team led by Howard and Frank, our two senior executives. And I've been really happy to be a small part of that success story. So not only am I familiar with Made in Space, but Aaron Kammerer, their founder, is going to be also one of the interviews on this uh, Space podcast series. But do please tell Aaron I said hello. I will. Let's go back to what you said about the partnership with Israel, which I think is very exciting. We're chatting a little bit earlier about the book Startup Nation, which came out probably 10 years ago, sort of chronicling Israel's rise from being this quasi-agrarian, semi-social state. And then in the early 90s, creativity and innovation just explode and the startup companies and so on. And it gives a whole bunch of different reasons for that. But I'd really like to hear what the Florida-Israel Innovation Partnership looks like, what does it consist of, and what sort of results have you seen from that so far? Thank you again, Richard, for allowing me to speak on this particular program. This is a program that's extremely close to my heart. I'll tell you what happened. So about eight years ago, our president, Frank DiBella, called me into his office and said, Tony, I'd like you to do something. It's kind of unusual. I'd like you to write a speech for me. And I know Frank is a great raconteur. He also writes extremely well and very experienced. I said, Frank, do you think I can justify or do something for you? He said, I just think you might come up with a different angle. And that was really probably from my research background, but also because I had taken a personal interest in the flight of Space Shuttle Columbia, on which, as you know, amongst others, there was the very first Israeli astronaut, Ilan Ramon. And Ilan, of course, like the other astronauts, perished. But I've been very interested in his story and success Frank's speech was to be presented to about 200 Israeli Jewish congregation in the Orlando area. So very supportive of Israel, but very supportive, as you say, the startup nation theme. So I wrote a speech for Frank and I got some words through various interpretations in Hebrew. And essentially, I wrote about Ilan Ramon, about his success and what he dreamed and how important it was to explore space in very simple words but also the fact that several personal items that Elan had on board had survived that dreadful crash back down to world, including parts of his personal notebook, in which he wrote, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here now, he said, today I feel I'm a real man in space because I'm working here in space and happy to return. 
And it was a very moving piece that I included in Frank's speech to this Israeli congregation. Well, apparently it was very well received. And within two weeks of that, Frank came to me and said, we're taking this a step further. I want you to go to Israel. I want you to come to Israel with me because I have this program which has been generated through Israeli support and indeed through our governor. And we want to allocate $2 million per annum for a joint partnership, $1 million from Israel, $1 million from Florida, so that we can collaborate in aerospace R&D, two companies working together. And typically, awards would be expected to be between two hundred dollars to $300,000 each. So it's really exciting. So I go to Israel, and I'm sitting looking at young Israeli men and women, and I'm absolutely knocked out with the technology I'm hearing. And next to me, alongside our president, was Mr. John Karras, who's like the number two guy in Lockheed Martin. So this guy is way above my pay scale, but we got on really well, and he too could see something was happening. The very first company that walked in the door was a young man called Dr. Oren Middlestein, who had graduated his PhD in California, and he's the CEO and co-founder of a company called STEMRAD from Israel. And he and his partners had come up with a very, very interesting form of radiation protection, which would be utilized in a military situation. And he wasn't sure where to go with it. And so we were looking at it, and I said to John, I kind of kicked him on the back of his leg. I said, this could be of great interest to Lockheed Martin in the future. Radiation protection for astronauts, why not use that perhaps in a suit? Wouldn't it be interesting to compare that to what the current radiation protection is like, and then how it might improve if you could incorporate the STEMRAD technology? It was successful. It was enormously successful. Lockheed Martin worked really hard and very closely with NASA in conjunction with this small company in Tel Aviv. They also had offices up in Haifa. And they now, Lockheed Martin, are going to use that technology. And it's been sent into space and tested and proven to be superior to the current radiation protection. You cannot protect the brain, the human brain, the human body, the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys. You can't protect those areas of a human in space. There's no man mission. That was my first introduction to Israeli technology. And ever since, I continue to be wowed by what I've seen and heard and been a part of. So we've now had our seven calls for proposals, typically three to four winners per year. And I'm happy to announce that in late October, I believe from memory, it's the 22nd of October, we'll have the eight round of projects. And we've had winners from all over the state of Florida, from Miami to Tampa to Gainesville. I think the winner from Gainesville was called Micro GRX, affiliated with the Innovation Center at the University of Florida. And Dr. Siobhan Mullaney, I'm really kind of pulling this from the back of my head, is the CEO and co-founder. She did a wonderful job of her investigations into actually something that I can care a great deal about is the aging process amongst us humans. You know, how do we detect? How do we pick it up? How do we improve? How do we slow it down? And utilizing space as a research vehicle. So they're just some of those winners from that program, but it has been very successful. And Richard, I apologize for talking so long. Other countries are watching it too. And they're saying, Tony, this is great for Israel and wonderful and congratulations. But what about me? And so in this period of time, both my president, Frank DiBello, and I, we've had a certain amount of very friendly and jovial pressure from other countries. Recently, about six months ago, at the OneWeb Satellites Facility, we signed an MOU with the Republic of France and a banking institution called BPI France to have a similar style program, which I am looking forward to seeing being initiated in the spring of 21. 
Spain is chasing us for an MOU. Brazil has already signed an MOU in March, just before we went under that curfew of COVID. Our president had it signed down in Miami with the president of Brazil. And as I mentioned, Spain, but also Japan, and certainly not least, United Kingdom absolutely would love the idea to collaborate with us. And we are open to working with all. So that's amazing, Tony. It's all from one great speech that you wrote. So I got to say, when the Cave Museum gets big enough, we're going to hire you as a speechwriter. That's this phenomenal results to get that sort of program going. And it's really a reflection, right, of, again, it's not only governments and it's not just U.S. companies now. It's this diversification of talent, but also risk so that by pulling in companies from these different countries, whether it's Israel, Brazil or Spain or the U.K., you really are building this international supply chain of various things. The market's doing that. You know, it's not just governments doing that. So I think that's, that's phenomenal because that's really what will make a lot of this sustainable. Yeah. And Richard, I might just might briefly add it. You reminded me in our last Accelerate event in May, the winner was not from Florida, but it was a UK company that I had met two years ago in London. And I said to him, Archangel Lightworks, satellite communications company, think about Florida. Don't forget about it. Sure enough, he applied. And they have to indicate, yes, if we win, we are considering opening up a facility in Florida. And now I've learned in the past few days that they are opening up, but they won the competition from the United Kingdom. Excellent company, great management team. They're now in negotiations with investors from Florida that when they come here, they'll get a major boost. Can I just mention something? And it's on a personal nature. Sometimes when it's really personal, it drives you even further. When I was on Israel on that first visit and I finished the first the five days and we were returning home, it happened to be the anniversary of the death of Ilan Ramon and entire space shuttle crew. And I remembered that it was scheduled to come back to Colombia at 9 a.m. in the morning, which would have been 3 p.m. in Israel. And I just totally out of the blue, it was almost like divine inspiration or something. I walked down to the beach, took off my shoes, socks and put my feet in the water. And I just said a prayer for the crew, but particularly thinking about Ilan Ramon. That evening, I got a call totally out of the blue from this lady. Her name was Rona Ramon. It was his widow. She called me out of the blue. She said, I heard as a crazy Irish UK guy working on this Israel program, I'd love to meet you. And we met the following day for lunch. It was almost like, what's going on here? Something mystic. This program is going to be very successful. I can feel it in my heart. That is a great and very touching story. Although I got to ask, Tony, when are the Irish going to get involved? (laughs) Come on. You are reading my mind. Uh, In Ireland, as we have Enterprise Florida here, who do a wonderful job and they collaborate with so many EDCs around the country and did all development agencies. Some weeks ago, I contacted Enterprise Ireland. And ironically, when I sent an email to Dublin, capital city, my email was deflected to Texas, to Austin, Texas, where they discovered Enterprise Ireland have several representatives. And in the past three to four weeks, I've been in discussions with one of them. I'll mention his name, Stephen Kyo. And today we had a discussion and he's asked me to present to a group of Irish aerospace companies in October, probably about 11 or 12. I don't have a calendar in front of me. And he essentially wants me to talk about Florida and the opportunities for Irish aerospace companies. And they would be early stage, probably looking for investments anywhere from one to five million. It would be very competitive for them. But if they're not in front of investors, then they'll never gain. So it's only when you go up front and you say, OK, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it everything. And I'm hoping that in the future, yes, something will come about. That was a nice pun there, Richard. (laughs) 
I got to put you on warning here, Tony. We're going to hold you personally accountable. If the Irish are not in the game, then somebody's got to be blamed here. So <laughs> Hopefully we'll have Guinness beer and Jameson Irish whiskey also on board a future space shuttle mission, which probably help astronauts better than an aspirin or something of that nature in the long term, but in mild moderation. I'm friends with one of the heirs of the Guinness family, and so we'll try to make sure that that's doable. Tony, last question. Let's get visionary for a moment here. Where do you think we're going to be, say, 10 years from now, in 2030, with regards to space exploration in general? And then as a sub-question of that, where do you think we're going to be in terms of public-private partnerships or the commercial part of space? So dream big here and assume that everything goes well in the next 10 years. Where do you think that might put us? That's like a big $100,000 question or $100 million question. I tell you what I'd love to see in the more short term is that it amazes me still that thinking back to the 60s and the 1970s, that if one were to fly from New York or Washington, D.C. to London, it's an overnight trip of seven to eight hours. And here we are in the 2020s, and it's marginally shorter. It's still five to six hours of a flight. Supersonic jets, I would love to see them operate. And I think perhaps Virgin Atlantic leading their efforts in their suborbital flights might be a pathway where we will see a group of airlines who all have these supersonic jets that might fly us from, say, New York or Washington, D.C. to Canberra in Australia in four hours. That, to me, would be an incredible achievement. It would be under the general mantle of aerospace, but the technology that might be used in communications to enable that to happen, I think would be phenomenally of great benefit to mankind here on Earth. Agriculture concerns me deeply. One always assumes that when you come from a nation like Ireland, where it rains pretty much every day, but not all day, that water is never an issue. And so I was saddened over the last couple of years to read that it is the pollution of water and the destruction on our agricultural processes, both in Florida and also in Europe, that are accelerating at an alarming rate. I would like to see the space program take a bigger lead. And I think that it's coming about very ever so slowly in the uses of drone technology in water purification system, in identifying those areas of our planet and our state in particular, where the pollution exists and how do we stop that pollution. And undoubtedly, University of Florida play a major lead in our state and indeed the entire country. The reputation of University of Florida is beyond par. Likewise, with our Everglades Foundation in South Florida, as we're protecting that very fragile environment, to me, that's critically important. So I would say agriculture, production of food, increasing the yields, watching our atmosphere, our environment, using technology to improve the information we have and, how do you say, rectify the bad things that are happening on our planet. I think that's very, very critical. If I could make a crazy wish for the future, Richard, I'd say something that always struck my mind. I think two things in particular. I think the ability to fly I think there was some crazy guy flying over LA recently who was about a couple of hundred feet away from United Airlines. That's not the kind of thing I'm thinking of. Something responsible, whereby one could fly on short trips at given altitudes from point A to point B with your own little backpack. I think that would be phenomenal. I'd love to see that. Just think of the doors that would open up to you. You're going down for a beer. <laughs> Are you allowed to have one? <laughs> Maybe one. 
I would love uh, that too. But you made a very interesting, important point, uh, Tony, is that a lot of the excitement around space, when people read about space exploration, they go, great, we're going to go back to the moon, we're going to go to Mars. But a lot of the utility is actually going to be focused back on here on Earth. And it'll improve our ability to observe the Earth much more accurately and make improvements to technologies here based on what we have in space. Like, as you said, the climate, agriculture, energy, this sort of things, important derivatives of maybe the aspirational goal of making it to Mars. But nevertheless, we should be producing downstream effects that we can use almost right away here. And Richard, I would just sort of add, and it might be sound a little comic, two things in the far distant future we should bear in mind. One of them, I would love the ability to teleport. There is a university apparently in Switzerland that's working on it, but so far they're not getting there. They're moving objects about one centimeter. But the ability to teleport from point A to point B, be it 5,000 or 500,000 miles or 50 million miles, that to me would be absolutely phenomenal. And finally, I would say, this is, I'm quoting the words of our good friend from Cambridge, Dr. Stephen Hawking, whom I met actually about 14, 15 years ago. We didn't have a discussion. But a question I raised to his group was, tell us about aliens. Would you like to meet aliens? And his answer was very surprising. He said, I don't think we really want to meet aliens, but it's probably gone beyond that now because those signals are going off into space for the past 100 years. Because I think in the long term, the aliens would be so far ahead of us that they would see us simply as protein, which is an alarming thought. So, Tony, you may have just caused me to lose a bet with my son. We've been arguing for at least 10 years about whether teleporting is possible or not. So I don't think I'm going to let him listen to this podcast or else he don't want to collect on his bet. And now I'm going to hold you accountable for three things, Irish astronauts, jetpacks, and teleporting. And so when we do our follow-up in 2030 podcast, we'll see if you are right on any of those. Tony, thank you very much for joining me today on Radio Kate. It's been a great, fun discussion, and I look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Richard, thank you very much. The honor was all mine. Thank you so much, and good luck to the great work that you do. Thank you very much. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.